This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. So tonight we are going to talk a little bit more about the carpal tunnel CPG. So this is part two. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, you'll want to go back and listen to that episode prior to listening to this one. Um, So in this episode, we're going to start talking a bit about examination. And the first thing I want to talk about are the outcome measures. So these are the activity limitations and self-reported measures. There are a few that they talk about in the CPG, so I'm going to go ahead and touch on those. The first one being the Boston Carpal Tunnel Questionnaire Symptom Severity Scale. And so they um, shorten this to the CTQSSS. This is an 11-item questionnaire used to assess symptom severity in individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome. The final score ranges from 1 being no symptoms to 5 being the worst possible symptoms. The second um, outcome measure that they talk about is the Boston Carpal Tunnel Questionnaire Functional Scale, so that's the CTQFS, and that's an 8-item questionnaire that assesses the function functional status of patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. The final scores range from, again, one, which is no functional deficits, to five, which is the worst function possible. The next one is one we're probably all a lot more familiar with, which is the DASH, the Disabilities of the Arm, Shoulder, and Hand Questionnaire. This is a 30-item questionnaire designed to assess disability in patients with upper extremity pathology. And then there's the Quick DASH, which is the shortened version of the DASH. Um, They don't go into a ton of details in this CPG about the DASH and the Quick DASH, Uh, But those are uh, outcome measures that you can find information on in other CPGs and throughout current concepts, um, MedBridge and a lot of the other resources. And also, like I said, Amanda, I'm sure you've probably used those ones quite a bit, right? Yes. Yeah. Those are the ones that I've always used for my um, upper extremity patients. So the responsiveness and MCID of the CTQFS DASH and Quick DASH have not been evaluated in those undergoing non-surgical management of carpal tunnel syndrome. Neither the CTQFS or DASH has been able to predict progression to surgery. Post-carpal tunnel release surgery, the CTQFS, DASH, and Quick DASH have all been shown to be responsive to change in values. Values are similar, ranging from moderate to high. The CTQSSS showed greater responsiveness compared to the CTQFS and the DASH. Bissett et al. reported the MCID for the CTQFS at six months was 0.74, and Ozer et al. reported the MCID for the CTQFS was 1.95 for individuals with diabetes and 1.25 for those without, um, and that was also evaluated six months post-surgery. The MCID for the DASH was reported six weeks post carpal tunnel release surgery and was 
Amir Fees et al. reported the MCID at six weeks post-surgery for the CTQ-SSS and CTQ-FS were 0.16 and 0.47, respectively. The total score from the CTQ-SSS and CTQ-FS has also been shown to be responsive following surgery. Psychometric properties of the CTQ-SSS, CTQ-FS, and the DASH are excellent. There is more evidence on those undergoing surgical management and only limited evidence on those undergoing non-surgical management. Only the CTQ-SSS has been shown to be responsive to change in those undergoing non-surgical management. So all of this to say that clinicians should use the CTQ-SSS to assess symptoms and the CTQ-FS or the DASH questionnaire to assess function when examining patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. Clinicians should use the CTQ-SSS to assess change in those undergoing non-surgical management. And this is all presented with level B evidence. The next section, they talk about activity limitations and physical performance measures. So the patient performance measures that they talk about, um, which I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on these, uh, but they talk about the Purdue pegboard, the Dellen modified Moberg pickup test, the Jebson-Taylor hand function test, and the nine-hole peg test. Norms are available available for both the Purdue pegboard and the um, Dellen modified Moberg pickup test. While the um, Purdue pegboard test discriminates between those with and without carpal tunnel syndrome age 60 and under, it is not useful in monitoring progression after carpal tunnel syndrome surgery. Uh, the Dellen modified Moberg pickup test also discriminates between those with and without carpal tunnel syndrome in younger patients and can help assessing change following carpal tunnel release surgery because data presented on responsiveness of this instrument are from individuals who underwent carpal tunnel release surgery. More research is needed to establish the reliability of the Jepson Taylor hand function test and the nine hole peg test in individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome. Also, more research is needed to determine the responsiveness of all physical performance-based measures in individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome undergoing non-surgical management. Clinicians may use the Purdue pegboard test or the Dellen modified Moberg pickup test to quantify dexterity at the onset of treatment and compare scores with established norms, and that is recommended with level C evidence. Clinicians should not use the Purdue pegboard, Jepson-Taylor hand function test, or nine-hole peg test to assess clinical change following carpal tunnel release surgery. Clinicians may use the Dellen modified Moberg pickup test to assess change following carpal tunnel release surgery, and that is also recommended with level C evidence. So I think a lot of this... um, As we go through, you'll see they sort of separate that out on like where the research shows um, that there's been a lot of evidence in those that had surgery and those who are doing non-surgical management. So with this information, I would just have a general understanding of, okay, um, which one, which, you know, clinical measure and which outcome measure should I be using in those that have surgery and those that um, are taking a non-surgical route. So the next section is on activity limitations and physical impairment measures. With um, For the physical impairment measures with level A evidence, um, lateral pinch, the lateral pinch receives dual innervation from the median and ulnar nerves, and therefore it should not be used as a measure in patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. And this is um, recommended for both surgical and non-surgical patients. 
Next one is the tip and three-point pinch. Um, So those grips receive innervation from more median innervated muscles, but there is innervation from branches proximal and distal to the carpal tunnel. Um, But evidence supports weakness in the presence of carpal tunnel syndrome when compared to controls. There's conflicting evidence on these tests in the assessment of change in individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome. The authors recommend that clinicians do not use grip strength when assessing short-term, and by short-term they mean less than three months, change in individuals following carpal tunnel release surgery, and this is recommended with level B evidence. Clinicians may assess grip strength and three-point or tip pinch strength in individuals presenting with signs and symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome and compare scores with established norms. Um, And this is also, this is with level C evidence. Evidence on strength testing of the abductor pollicis brevis muscle is also conflicting. There's also conflicting evidence on the use of tip and three-point pinch, as well as um, abductor pollicis brevis muscle strength testing in individuals following carpal tunnel release surgery. And this is uh, level D evidence for this. Uh, The next one's two-point discrimination. There's also conflicting evidence on the use of sensory measures, including two-point discrimination and threshold testing to assess change over time in patients with surgically managed carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, And this is recommended with level D evidence. The next is threshold or vibration testing, uh, which they recommend should not be used in those undergoing non-surgical management until more evidence becomes available. And this is, uh, that's level C evidence. And the last one is Phelan's test. Um, So they recommend that Phelan's test may be used to assess change in those with carpal tunnel release surgery at long-term follow-ups. And that is recommended with level C evidence. So um, on page 36 in the CPG, they have the best practice points, um, and they talk about essential data elements. So this is kind of a nice summary um, and some things that I think are important to know. So in your examination, you want to look at patient age, the cat's hand diagram, which is where the patient will mark the location of their symptoms, their wrist ratio index, whether shaking their hands provides relief, duration of symptoms, intensity of symptoms, and frequency of symptoms, as well as prior non-surgical interventions. And then the you want to also look for the presence of thenar atrophy. So you're going to see thenar atrophy in those that um, have severe carpal tunnel syndrome. For um, They talk about activity limitations, so the self-reported measures, the CTQ-SSS and the CTQ-FS or the DASH. Um, activity limitations, so physical performance measures. Again, we're going to look at that um, Purdue pegboard test to assess the dexterity, and you're going to compare to establish normative values for age and sex. The next section is physical impairment measures. So they talk about the SEMS-Weinstein monofilament test, and so you're going to compare that to normal values of 2.83 or 3.22. And then the static two-point discrimination on the middle finger, which you'll compare to the normative value of six millimeters. Um, they also recommend the Phelan test, sign, and carpal compression test, as well as uh, grip strength and tip or three-point pinch strength to assess just for general strength assessment. Um, and you want to compare that to established normative values for age and sex. Um, so... I want to recommend that you check the additional notes on which these measures are validated um, in those undergoing non-surgical management or surgical management. 
The authors also note that grip strength should not be used to assess change following surgery until the 12th postoperative week. So again, all that's kind of written out on page 36 in the CPG. Um, and I just think it's kind of a nice summary. Um, and it's a, it's a good place to look at all those uh, assessment values and what you should be using. Do you have anything that you want to add into that um, examination portion, Amanda? No, I don't think so. It's This CPG, as I mentioned in the first episode, it's pretty dense. So, um, you know, take your time reading through this and, and really try and understand what the research says for those with and without um, having surgery. I think that's that's kind of a lot of the take home here. So the next thing we're going to talk about are interventions. Um, and so there's a, several categories that they talk about um, here. So we're just going to kind of work our way through them. The first one is assistive technology. So with level C evidence, uh, they recommend that clinicians may use, may educate patients regarding the effects of mouse use on carpal tunnel pressure and assist patients in developing alternate strategies, including the use of arrow keys, touchscreens, or alternating the mouse hand. Clinicians may recommend keyboard with reduced strike force for patients with carpal tunnel syndrome who report pain with keyboard use. The next uh, section is orthoses. So there's no consensus on the most appropriate orthosis material, design, prescription, or position, or evidence to accurately identify ideal candidates for orthosis intervention. Many of the studies available lack a control group, adequate sample size, and adequate randomization and or blinding. Most studies lacked participant compliance data for orthosis use, as well as a use of use of a meaningful validated outcome measure. Many studies were also confounded by the use of multiple interventions, masking the effect of any single intervention. Additionally, most of the studies enrolled patients with mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome, and no conclusion can be drawn with respect to the effects of orthoses on those with severe carpal tunnel syndrome. So basically what they're saying is, they're not really sure based on the evidence available uh, how effective an orthosis is. So there are recommendations here. Um, with level B evidence, clinicians should recommend a neutral positioned wrist orthosis worn at night for short-term symptom relief and functional improvement for individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome seeking non-surgical management. With level C evidence, they recommend that clinicians may suggest adjusting wear time to include daytime, symptomatic, or full-time use when night use only is ineffective at controlling symptoms in individuals with mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome. Clinicians may also add MP joint immobilization or modify the wrist joint position for individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome who fail to experience relief. Clinicians may add education on pathology, risk identification, symptom self-management, and postures or activities that aggravate symptoms. With level C evidence, the clinician should recommend an orthosis for women experiencing carpal tunnel syndrome during pregnancy and should provide a postpartum follow-up evaluation to examine the resolution of symptoms. The next section, they talk about biophysical agents. So with level C evidence, superficial heat from wraps, paraffin, and microwave or short-wave short diathermy have been shown to provide short-term relief of symptoms um, for individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome. Diathermy is contraindicated in areas where sensation is severely impaired and over areas with metal implants. It should also not be performed on pregnant patients. With level C evidence, clinicians may offer a trial of um, IFC electrical stim for short-term pain symptom relief in adults with idiopathic mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome. 
With level B evidence, clinicians should not use low-level laser therapy or other types of non-laser light therapy for individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome. With level C evidence, clinicians should not use thermal ultrasound in the treatment of patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. With level D evidence, there is conflicting evidence on the use of non-thermal ultrasound, therefore no recommendation can be made. Level B evidence, clinicians should not use iontophoresis in the management of mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome. Level C evidence, clinicians may perform phonophoresis with non-surgical management of patients with mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome for the treatment of signs and symptoms, but should consider other interventions. And with level B evidence, clinicians should not use or recommend the use of magnets in the intervention for individuals with carpal tunnel syndrome. So... They make a lot of um, different recommendations on those biophysical agents, so I would just um, review those again as well. For manual therapy techniques with level C evidence, clinicians may perform manual therapy directed at the cervical spine and upper extremity for individuals with mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome in the short term. And with level D evidence, they note that there is conflicting evidence on the use of neurodynamic mobilizations in the management of mild or moderate carpal tunnel syndrome. And then the last section is therapeutic exercise. So with level C evidence, clinicians may use a combined orthotic and stretching program in individuals with mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome who do not have thenar atrophy and have normal two-point discriminations. Clinicians should monitor those undergoing treatment for clinically significant improvement. So again, those are kind of the the different interventions that they have a lot of evidence on when it comes to carpal tunnel syndrome. So I know that these two episodes were kind of dense and that the CPG itself is dense. Um, I do want to reiterate in the first episode, I did know this is a newer CPG, but the evidence that they talk about in this CPG um, is over the last, you know, several years. So I still think it's really important information to know, even though it is a newer CPG. So Amanda, is there anything you want to add with carpal tunnel? I'm not sure if that's something that you see a lot of, or even if you just have stuff that you've, um, you know, come across in research that maybe you want to add. Yeah. I don't necessarily have anything to add. Um, you know, I think just listening to these episodes and you know, reviewing the basics for these is probably sufficient. It's a really long CPG and I think it's really involved. It's not something I treat a lot clinically just because I've always worked with an OT. Um, Mm -hmm. So usually they go there. Um, It's just something like Alexa said, like I'd review, I definitely have a good understanding of surgical versus non-surgical management and then definitely understand those modalities or the biophysical agents, what is recommended. And just as importantly though, what's not recommended. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, as always, if you guys have any specific questions, you can send them to us at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. We have our next upcoming Patreon study session. Um, So we have one in January here, and then we'll also have one in February. So if you guys are interested in learning more about that, you can visit patreon.com slash certifiedocspodcast, and I will link that in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you very much.